Go ahead and have a seat and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We've, uh, I've promised to, uh, to speed up, and while we really genuinely are, it's not going to seem that way today, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22. Uh, but as you turn there, uh, we come to this passage in Matthew that is... Um, It's going gonna, it's gonna to put us to the test today, I guess. Uh, it's it's going to challenge us to consider whether the, the songs that we sing are merely words of our mouth or whether or not they're the desires of our hearts. It's also strangely placed uh, amongst some other things that are going on in the book of Matthew, and, and I think that's going to, uh, to show us some, uh, some incredible realities as well. But follow along as I read to you Matthew chapter 18 or Matthew chapter 8, rather, verses 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. The question I think that this text is asking of us all today is Is it possible to have Jesus as Savior and not Lord? Is it possible to have Jesus as Savior? And not Lord. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. Is it possible to have him forgive us for the consequences of our sins, but not be in control of our lives? And it's not only here, but it's in several uh, passages as we see Jesus encountering people who seem to be sincerely desirous of what he has to offer, but in the end, just get turned away. And so I think Jesus' answer to the question, is it possible to have him as Savior and not Lord, is decisively no. Because, as I've said, he, he has a tendency to turn away sometimes sincere people. And so that leads us to another question. Doesn't sincerity matter in following Jesus? And the answer to that is a decisive yes. I think that's also what Jesus is going to show us here in this text. Absolutely, sincerity matters in following Jesus, but it's not the only thing that matters. The reality is that our sincerity, when we come to Jesus in faith to be forgiven of our sins, to follow him and be disciples, it has to be on his terms and not on ours. And his terms include counting the cost, a cost that we'll consider today. But Jesus asks each and every one of us to count the cost of following him. And and the question then may arise after that, well, Logan, why must we count the cost if salvation is free? And that's because free things can still be costly. 
Just because somebody gives you an extravagant gift far beyond what you can afford doesn't mean that there isn't some response required on your part once that gift is received. The reason we must come to Jesus on his terms is because salvation to us is free. He has accomplished it all. He has paid it all. He's done it all. He lived the sinless life in perfect obedience to the law. We can't do that. He died the death that we deserved to die in our place. And as God, he's valuable enough to do that for all of us. We can't do that. He was resurrected from the grave three days later, showing his power and victory over sin and death. We can't do that. And as one pastor said, the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But the reality is, once we do receive that gift from Jesus, it comes with some demands. And Jesus asks these two men here to consider that cost. Last week, uh, as we were looking at uh, the miracles of Jesus and, and as we looked at uh, some other things, I, I defined evangelism from the Lausanne Covenant, uh, which was written back in the 70s, and it's a, it's a pretty helpful thing. Uh, let me give you the full definition, or not the full definition, but the full context of what's said in the covenant after the definition of evangelism. So this is more than I read last week. Evangelism itself is the proclamation of the historical biblical Christ as Savior and Lord, there's both, with a view to persuading people to come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. So that's what evangelism is. Evangelism happens when we tell people who Jesus is, that he is Savior and Lord, and evangelism happens when we attempt to to call them to respond, to, as the covenant puts it, persuade people to come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. It goes on to say, in issuing the gospel invitation, we have no liberty to conceal the cost of discipleship. Jesus still calls all who would follow him to deny themselves, take up their cross, and identify themselves with his new community. The results of evangelism include obedience to Christ, incorporation into his church, and responsible service in the world. Jesus calls his people, he calls those who would follow him to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. And he is still calling to people, calling people to that today. The results of that evangelism, when somebody trusts Christ, ought to be obedience to Christ, incorporation into the church, and responsible service in the world. The reality is that Jesus was not a half-hearted Savior, and therefore is not calling half-hearted disciples. Certainly, we don't know everything when we come to Jesus. Certainly our faith grows, our obedience grows, our knowledge grows, the fruit of the Spirit becomes more manifest in us, but we must start the Christian walk with wholehearted commitment. Now, this might seem like a strange place for Matthew to put this, because immediately before, as we saw last week, there's three miracles in the book of Matthew, and we considered what those showed us about Jesus and ourselves, and immediately after, we're going to start seeing him continue to do miracles again. So why does Matthew put this passage right here in the context of all of these other miracles? Well, I think Matthew is trying to show us 
what Jesus has authority over. He has authority over disease. He has authority over storms. He has authority over demons and spiritual things. And as we see in this passage, he has authority over his disciples. And so I want us to see today two critical errors that sometimes happen in following Jesus. Two critical errors in following Jesus. That's on a slide. We can go ahead and switch that one up there. And then our first critical error is making promises without counting the cost. Number one, making promises without counting the cost. Interestingly, the first person here in verses 19 and 20 does seem to understand the cost. Uh, before we continue, I will say that uh, as, as the Gospels go on, what it means to be a disciple seems to get narrower and narrower. Um, we, we find that, that oftentimes early in the Gospels, many people, including this scribe here, are, follow, are, are called disciples. Disciples were people who followed a rabbi. They learned what the rabbi taught. They learned what the rabbi did. They did the things that the rabbi did. They taught the things that the rabbi taught. And ultimately, they were being trained up to be replacements for the rabbi when the rabbi was gone. And so uh, Jesus has lots and lots of people who are following him at the start. And as he goes on to say harder and harder and harder things, the, the number of disciples seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so every time you see the word disciple, that doesn't necessarily indicate one of the 12. Uh, this, this is certainly the case here. Uh, verses 18, 19, and 20. So when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And, and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, maybe this scribe wanted to, uh, to just be able to be permitted to go with Jesus to the other side of the lake. Maybe who knows what. I'm not exactly sure what the motivation of the scribe was, but he understood that, it, that, uh, that, that to follow Jesus meant following him wherever he would go. But Jesus seems to see through this promise. He seems to see through the, the promise that this man will, will go through or go wherever he goes, and he wants him to understand exactly what he is saying. And so Jesus responds with, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. And then the word in Greek for but here is, is very adversative. But in, in contrast to the facts that foxes and birds have homes, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, he had nothing. He lived and taught entirely at the mercy of others. And just about everywhere he went, he was rejected. In fact, rejection is a theme throughout the book of Matthew that we can, can track or trace uh, pretty well. But he was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. He was rejected in Samaria. He was rejected in Judea. He was rejected in the Decapolis. He was rejected by his own disciples. And finally, he is so rejected that he is removed from the face of the earth by crucifixion. At which time, he had nothing except the clothes on his back. He had nothing, living entirely at the mercy of others. And so he reminds this person who's making this promise to count the cost. Discipleship is easy when times are good. Rabbis were revered in, in the culture. But Jesus had nothing. 
The sincerity of our discipleship is proved when times are hard. When it's not easy to follow Jesus. When, when, you know, I think sometimes we forget. This isn't in my notes. I'm going on a little excursus here. But in thinking in terms of application. The older we get, the more we build our community inside the church. And the easier it becomes. We shouldn't forget what it's like to be a high schooler today. Or anytime, really. Swimming against a cultural current. That's where sincerity is proved, though. That's where you guys will see what you find ultimately valuable. Discipleship's easy when times are good. When you think Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy and holy, I mean, healthy and wealthy and happy, and when, when he's just a, a means to worldly ends and it looks like following Jesus is going to get me the things I want, man, sign me up. But what about when we're rejected? What about when we're persecuted? What about when it costs us our, our lives? And if we're not paying attention, by the way, that stuff's coming. If you don't know what social capital is yet, you should look it up. Because those times are coming. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor in World War II, who, who ended up giving his life for his faith, died about two weeks. He was martyred about two weeks before the concentration camp where he was being held was, uh, was freed. Um, but he talks about this in his book. Um, uh, man, now I'm going to forget the name of it, and I didn't put it in my notes. I think it's The Cost of Discipleship. But he talks about this by contrasting cheap grace with costly grace. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution, that's forgiveness, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on to say, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. I love that. Jim Boyce goes on to say, most of us live in a rather mindless environment. Life is too fast and our contact with other persons too impersonal for much serious reflection. Even in church, we are more often encouraged to join this committee, back that project, or serve on this church board that we are counseled to examine, uh, that, or serve on this church board than we are called to examine our re relationship with God and Jesus Christ. As long as we are performing for the church, few will question whether our profession is genuine or spurious. How many sermons suggest that a member of a church may not actually be saved, although they are members? How many teachers stress that a personal, self-denying, costly, and persistent following of Christ is necessary if a person is to be acknowledged by Jesus at the final day? So I'm asking, 
Have you counted the cost? Have you understood that, that when we come to Christ in faith, the call is not just to receive forgiveness, the call is to follow Him? Have you understood that when you come to Christ, what He offers you is not just forgiveness for sins that you keep, but forgiveness for sins that He is going to separate you from? Do you just want his forgiveness? Or do you want to part from your sin and cling to your Savior? Because Jesus will either be found ultimately worthy above all else, as we all sang this morning, or he has not been found at all. He has either been found worthy, ultimately worthy above all else, or he has not been found at all. And Jesus cautions this man not to, make, uh, not to make promises without first counting the cost. The second critical error in following Jesus is making excuses to delay discipleship. Making excuses to delay discipleship. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, so this is where we get a description of a disciple, and we don't necessarily have to understand this to be one of the twelve, but another person wanting to follow him to the other side of the lake comes up to him and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If the first man was too quick in making promises, this man is too slow in taking action. I'll say that again. If the first man was too quick in making promises, this man is too slow in action. There's debate about whether this man's father had already died or not, and I'm really unsure of why there's debate, because Jews didn't embalm, and uh, as such, they were required to bury the same day. So if this man's father had already died, uh, he would be, or if he had, if he had died previously, he would already be buried. If he had died that day, he would have been home tending to his father. And so it seems implausible to me that this man's father would have already been dead. And he was saying, Jesus, my dad just died and I need to go bury him. I'll be right behind you. I don't think that's what Jesus is arguing with here. I think what's going on here is this man's father had to have been living and he wants to go home and wait for his father to die. At best, this is good-hearted and he wants to care for his father, something Jesus is not forbidding. At worst, he wants to get his father's inheritance. I don't know which and it doesn't really matter. Because Jesus isn't forbidding burying parents. He isn't, uh, what he is forbidding here is delaying discipleship due to a stage of life. He's forbidding saying, well, no, Jesus, I want to follow you. I just can't do it yet. I, I got to go home and take care of my dad. Interestingly, I think if we understand the whole of Scripture in contrast to this man, those two things could have happened simultaneously. He could have been a disciple of Jesus and cared for his parents. But what he was saying is, Jesus, I need to go home. I want to follow you, but let's just put that on pause. Let's, let's take a time out. I'm going to go home. I'm going to deal with my, my parents. I'm going to wait till they die. I'm going to bury them. I'm going to take care of all the things that need to be taken care of. And then I will, I will follow you. 
I think this, by the way, might be particularly tempting for young people in the room. I can reap what the world has to offer now and follow Jesus later. Because when you're young, you think there's plenty of time. Last week, I didn't put this in my notes either. I couldn't even name the song. Last week, uh, I quoted a song from uh, Taylor Swift. This week, Justin Bieber comes to mind. Because I was listening to the radio this week. If you don't listen to, to new music, you're missing out a lot on the cultural commentary. Let me just tell you. But even Justin Bieber, who I think we could make a case to be a pretty foolish guy, uh, I think it was Bieber, I could be wrong, um, said that time's basically the one resource you don't get back. You can make and lose money, you can make and lose friends, you can get and lose jobs and businesses and homes and all kinds of things. But time is the one resource we never, ever get back. And if we think we can delay discipleship and and follow Jesus later, I think the question before us is, if we don't really want to follow Jesus now, if you don't find him, and I'm talking to the young people in the room, well, I'm really talking to all of us, but it's maybe especially the young people in the room, if you don't find him worthy now, what makes you think you will later? That's just pride. He's either worthy or he's not. And the reality is the world, it tugs at us all. That's not just a young people problem. Listen to J.C. Ryle. It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants. So much as the love of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well and bidding fair for heaven while boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. The cares of the world still threaten to choke out faith. We're always going to have to keep coming back to counting the cost, to, to, to evaluating what we ultimately find valuable. And sometimes it comes in little ways. Are we so busy scrolling that we ignore the scripture? So busy playing that we don't pray? Do we have too many chores to faithfully serve and worship in church? Because the reality is our spouses, our friends, our coworkers, our kids, our grandkids, they're watching. And they will see what we find ultimately valuable. They will see if we find our phone more valuable than the scriptures. They will see if we find recreation more valuable than worship. They will see if we find work to be more important than our families and the priorities of the Lord. Those those tugs 
from the world are always going to be there. They're always going to be pulling on us. And it's really easy to make excuses to delay discipleship. And we shouldn't necessarily think of that, and that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here, just in big terms. Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not delaying my discipleship in, with Jesus for, uh, for years to, to take care of my parents. But are you delaying your reading of the scriptures this morning to scroll through your social media? That's still delayed discipleship. And by the way, there's a phrase we love to say in our house. It doesn't always happen very well, uh, but, but we've reminded our kids of this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And so when we come to Jesus, yes, sincerity matters, but, but it must be on his terms. And those who don't come to Jesus on his terms, he's quick to reject because we come to him on his terms or not at all. We shouldn't make promises without first counting the cost, and we shouldn't make excuses to delay discipleship. He is worthy of our wholehearted devotion because he is a wholehearted Savior. There's another matter for us to consider in this text. It's small, but it's one that we don't want to lose in the book of Matthew, in the Gospels, or even in this text right here. And that's the term that Jesus uses to describe himself. In verse 20, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is our first encounter with the term Son of Man in the Gospels. But it's an important one, and it's an important one in Matthew. It's used 81 times in the Gospels, the vast majority of which is in the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the the Gospels that kind of give an overview of Jesus' life. John is much more theological. And of those 81 uses of the term Son of Man in the Gospels, only two are said by somebody other than Jesus. And both of those two instances are somebody really close to him. 79 out of 81 occurrences of the term Son of Man come right from the lips of Jesus. What's the significance of this? Well, if he had just said a Son of Man, uh, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but a Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, there would be no significance. It would have just meant that he was a man. But Jesus is very specific here in referring to himself as the Son of Man. And I'm firmly convinced that this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. I, we, we looked at Daniel not too long ago, but we did not uh, consider Daniel chapter 7. And so let me just explain Daniel 7 to you. Daniel has a, a vision in Daniel chapter 7 of these four beasts. And, and it's the... Um, it's Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and, and the Greeks. And the, these, these beasts each represent these different, uh, different kingdoms. But ultimately, the fourth beast in there is Rome. And Rome is actually the beast from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 that is reigning over, that is, that is captivated 
um, and, and not in a good way. Israel is captive to Rome at this time and, and subject to Roman authority. And so this vision of Daniel is being uh, lived out there. And, and if you don't know Daniel 7 very well, I'm not going to take the time to explain it today. You should. Daniel sees what for us is history and what for him was future with remarkable precision and clarity. It's amazing. But he has these visions of these four beasts, these four kingdoms. Again, Rome is one of those kingdoms that is ruling during Jesus' life. And then this vision shifts from the beast to the ancient of days. Now, most of us are probably, especially if we have any experience in church, familiar with the term ancient of days, and it is a clear reference to God the Father. And so we see the ancient of days seated on his throne, ruling in heaven, even over these kingdoms. And then in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Remember how I said that this is placed here by Matthew to show us what Jesus has authority over, that he has authority over demons and storms and disease and sickness and death and disciples. But here we see that in Daniel chapter 7, even as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, because to him in Daniel 7 was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is given the authority, the glory, and the power of the Ancient of Days. Jesus also refers to himself this way in Matthew 26, 64, when he says to the high priest, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Clearly, another reference to Daniel chapter 7, as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So why, why does Jesus use this term so often and not something maybe even a, a more specific more messianic, more Christological. Why this term? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is because this term had largely been ignored in, in Jewish writing. Though it, it's there in, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, almost none of the writings from the Jews in speaking of who the Messiah would be referred to him as the Son of Man. And so for, for that reason, Jesus was able to, to define the term how he wanted it defined. And, and just in the book of Matthew, we'll see Jesus use this term to, uh, to affirm his deity. We'll see him use it to affirm that he's God. We'll see it used to claim authority to forgive sin and to ransom people from their sin. We'll see the term used in connection with his prediction of his death and resurrection. And we'll see the term used to speak of returning in judgment. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. He wasn't the Messiah that they expected. They wanted someone who would ransack their enemies. He came to conquer sin. 
They wanted an invincible Savior, and he came to die at their hands. They wanted a king who would oppose everyone else. He came to confront their sin and ours. But his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His rule is eternal. Philippians 2, verse 10, says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's a reference to heaven, earth, grave, hell. The reality is that every knee will bow before Christ. Which means your knee will bow before Christ. The only question before us at this point is, will that bowing be by choice or by force? Because every knee will bow. Some will bow by choice, counting the cost, finding him supremely worthy. And some will bow by force. I've made reference uh, in the past to, um, to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, particularly uh, the scene with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. The book got it right. The movie got it wrong. There's another one that I really love, the way they did it in the movie. And that is after, if you know the story, hopefully you do. If not, you might be a little lost, and I'm sorry. But uh, you should have read the book. That's just the reality of it. Or seen the movie. But uh, Edmund and the other kids, they come into Narnia, and Edmund gets caught uh, by the, the white witch. And Aslan, the lion, the king, representative of Jesus, as Lewis writes, um, he negotiates a deal for his life to free Edmund from the power of the white witch. And there's this scene in the movie where the white witch comes to negotiate the deal. And she's being carried by all these ugly beasts on this, you know, whatever it was called with the poles and the chair and all that kind of stuff. And she goes into the, the, um, the tent and they, they talk and, and this is where they negotiate this deal for his life to free Edmund. And the queen gets back in her chair and she asks him the question, how do I know you'll keep your promise? And he doesn't answer. He just roars, and she falls backwards into her throne at the roar of the king. The reality is, the lion of the tribe of Judah will roar before us all. And if we've bowed the knee by choice, it will be a glorious day. But if by force, it will be the fearful and dreaded day of the Lord that the scriptures describe. And I don't want you to just say that you want to bow the knee by choice. You have to count the cost. Because while salvation is free, it demands following Jesus. It demands giving up everything. Will you have to give up your family? No, but are you willing to, if that's what, what it comes to? Do you have to give up your job or your home or your life? Maybe not, but are you willing to if that's what it takes to follow Jesus? Because Jesus will be found worthy over everything or he has not been found at all. Lord, may we find you worthy
over everything. May we enjoy the things in this life as as gifts from you, wonderful gifts from a kind God and a glorious Savior. But may we see you in the fullness of who you are for your love and your grace and your mercy and your justice and your wrath. May we see it all and find you supremely worthy. And may we count the cost and be willing to give up everything that this world has to offer, the fleeting pleasures of sin, knowing that that in you we, we not only find what is ultimately joyful and worthy, we find what is eternally joyful and worthy. May not a single person leave this room today without having counted the cost and found you worthy for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name.